Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast. Before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Vite Shotguns put 20% more pellets in the kill zone. Put the work back in your horse with Rite. Yeti, built for the wild. The cross boots go the extra mile. Sitka, gear built to last. Prime bows, stability built in. G5 broadheads, built American tough and designed to hunt. Killing stick arrows, dependable and accurate. Stand releases, quality and excellent in your hand. I'd like to give a shout out to my close friend, Brent Nadu, who wrote the music to our podcast. Well, this week, folks, I'm pretty excited about our new guest that we have on this week. And, you know, I've been in this industry for quite a while, and there's some people that you admire, and then there's some people that you admire and respect. And this next guest coming up, uh, he has both. I admire him. I respect him. I never had the privilege to hunt out of a blind with him or even spend much time, but uh, I've met him at shows. He's been in the industry. It's just one of those names that you... uh, you know, you always respect, you hear good things about, and what he's done in the industry is what he's put back. is is has been pretty amazing, and what he's working with today. But uh, I want to introduce Ira McCauley out of Missouri. Ira, I appreciate you being with me, man. Well, thanks for having me, George. I appreciate that introduction, although it's probably uh, more embellishing than is deserved. But uh, but yeah, we have both been in this for a long time. And uh, and like you said, you know, most of our interaction has been at shows, but uh, mutual respect and uh, look forward to just talking about what, what has happened in the past and what's going on now. Yeah, you know, it's one thing I really respected with you, um, you know, at the shows, like you said, we're always busy and you're trying to, you know, you're, you're putting 110 percent because this is go time. And but you've always made a point if you saw me, you know, to hey, take the time to say hi and. And say you came up to us down at the NWTF and 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 you just made sure you came in the booth and said hi and you know to me a lot of that goes a long ways because you know it's not about egos it's not it's it's there is there's a common respect between us and that goes a long ways but uh, no I just want to well, get go ahead you know, when you look at a guy your size it's a lot better <laughs> to be friends with somebody your size than to have them be your enemy so yeah, yeah. I, I hear you I hear you. <laughs> But, uh, well, you know what, you had a common, we got a common buddy who I think the world of, I have for a long time. I, if he had been my kid, I'd have been proud of him. He is Brooke Richard, and, and Brooke is just, he was, I was doing stuff with Brooke. In fact, he did, we did a goose hunt in our, in, behind my shop in Michigan years ago before the Point Malay show, and he spent the night there, and, and um, I think we got him a goose even that morning before the show, but Brooke was always, he's always been, yes, sir, no, sir, Mr. George, you know, he's always had that um, great uh, character and, and great manners, and, and uh, plus, I mean, he's knowledgeable for his, for his age, he's very knowledgeable, and, but uh, anyway, why don't you, if you would for us, kind of give a background of uh, how you started, who you are, and what you've done, and, and what you got going on now. Well, how I started goes way, way back, you know, when I was a kid, I was an Air Force brat and my dad, we moved, we moved around a lot. And, uh, so we didn't really have like a home, like, like most people do where you have friends that are consistent and live in the same place for a long time. But one thing that was consistent was that, uh, my grandparents on both sides lived and died in the wool 
waterfowling areas. So, you know, Hackberry, Lake Charles, Louisiana was one set of grandparents. And then the other set was in uh, Brookshire, Louisiana, or uh, Brookshire, Texas, which is kind of that, you know, Eagle Lake, Katy, Rice Prairie type stuff there. And so every year on the holidays, we would go down there to visit them. And, uh, you know, man, things were just so different back then. I mean, we were little kids, but we'd ride our bicycles with our guns to go hunting. We'd, we'd take grandma's car, even though I didn't have a driver's license. You know, I was like 10 and I'd take her car and we'd go hunting and, and we didn't have any equipment. We didn't have duck calls. We didn't have decoys. We didn't have anything. We'd just basically go slip ditches or lay on our back somewhere and hope some poor bird flew by. And, uh, you know, it was, it was extremely remedial, but, uh, but it built a passion that that's lasted my whole life. And, uh, so that's kind of how I got into waterfowling. Um, and, you know, as I, I guess kind of my years from when I was like, Oh, maybe 12 to 16, 11 to 16, somewhere in there, we lived in South Carolina. So, of course, there were no ducks there to speak of other than wood ducks. So, mainly what we did was hunted deer on these old deer clubs where basically they'd run them with dogs and, and you'd, you know, have a stand and you'd sit there and post up and try to shoot a deer with a shotgun. And so, when we moved to Missouri, uh, I was a junior in high school and suddenly, you know, there were some ducks around that were, that were a possibility to shoot. And man, I just, I just really fell back into it. So, you know, that's kind of when I started hunting again and had some good friends and connections with some, some nice places. And, and so really started waterfowling hunting quite a bit, you know, once I got, uh, into college, honestly. And, uh, and so that, you know, that's kind of where everything started to, to kind of blossom. And really here in Missouri, although we would still go and, and hunt down south some, uh, that's kind of where I started waterfowling more more seriously was once I got into college. And then once I got out of college, it, it really got bad. So bad or good, I guess you could say. It got good. There yeah. you go. Do you remember your first shotgun? I do. Um, I started off with a, my brother still got it. It's a Winchester 410 pump. I want to say it's model 1987 or 1897. You, you may know. No. Do you? No, I don't. Well, I, I was a Winchester. I had a single barrel 20 gauge model 32A, I think it is. That was what I started yeah. out with. And then when I got old enough and, and worked, I... I was big in sports, and then I was umpiring ball, and I bought my first Remington 870, and then I had that for a long time. Yep, I do remember, and and I don't know, like I went, my dad was like, you need to shoot this 20 gauge. Well, you know, I was still just a little kid, and I I just remember being petrified that the 20 gauge was going to knock my shoulder off, you know, going from a 410 (laughs) to a 20 gauge. And then the other thing about guns, and I still have this gun, but when I was 13, I taught swimming lessons to little kids at our house with my mom, and I I earned five hundred dollars, which was enough money to buy a, a Browning A5 mag, and and I still have that gun, and I actually shot it this year for the first time in who knows how long, but uh, 
but that was the first gun I ever bought, and I was 13. Did you say you taught swimming lessons? I taught swimming lessons, yep, when I was 13. I swam my whole life. Um, I was a competitive swimmer and had a scholarship to college to swim, and, and uh, that I didn't do that for very long. But, but yeah, I, I swam and swam and swam and swam. Back then, you didn't have any earbuds to listen to music or anything else, so it was a very boring existence. <laughs> but I guess it builds, it builds some uh, character, I guess. Well, Ira, they say that rocks are better swimmer than I am. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm, I'm a sinker, not a swimmer. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you know, swimming's a, a great life skill and, and can help you to uh, keep from dying, I guess, but boring. I would never encourage my kids to be swimmers. Yeah, it's it's in, my wife is a swimmer, and she, she swim her. Actually, her sister had a chance to, almost for the Olympics in swimming, but she's a New Englander girl, so she's used to the crystal clear. When she moved to the Midwest, she had a hard time because you know, New Hampshire and up through there, the White Mountains, and she was used to crystal clear lakes. She comes here with the muddy, muddy lakes, and she had a hard time getting used to uh, not being able to see, you know, three feet in the water. But um, that's good. So, um, what would you say? So ducks, you, you hunted ducks before you did geese. Geese were. When did geese start coming along in your life? Oh no, we were shooting geese right off the bat. Probably oh, as go. much more ducks, you know, because you know you get down there. Back in those days, that was where all the white geese went, and yeah. a lot of the specks. And and really, honestly, I remember as a kid riding around in in the car with my dad, and there would just be fields rice fields down in texas that were absolutely nothing but pintail and mallard heads sticking out of them and those days are are long gone but they certainly were uh were there in huge numbers when i was young what do you think has been the difference in in of in the population you know because you hear that numbers are declining but i was talking to a gentleman uh, last week or um, and he was Dan Brothers. I don't know if you know him. He's out of Missouri. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know Dan yeah, very well. Did a good podcast with Dan last week, and he was talking about that the numbers were down, but the pressure, the hunting pressure, is up. And um, well, everybody has their theories on that, but I think the biggest thing, if you really just think about it and look historically at the landscape, um, you know. Let's just take Missouri, for example. You know, their first uh, waterfowl management areas were, were started back in, you know, the, the 60s and 70s. And they, they mainly had a goose focus back then. And they didn't really start focusing on, you know, having habitat for ducks until, shoot, I mean, 70s, 80s, 90s. A lot of our habitat were... Uh, has been done in my lifetime, and when I say my lifetime, you know, the last 30 years. And so Missouri is a dry state, and unless we had a flood, there really was very little habitat here for them. And, and even a state like Arkansas, you know, there's been a lot of changes there. And so I think if you look up and down the flyway and you look at the private dollars and the public dollars that have gone into providing habitat for ducks, north of their traditional wintering areas uh it's it's expansive and i think that that has been a huge change on the landscape that really has affected 
you know, how far those ducks were willing to travel. Um, not, not to mention, you know, I, I know that you can go back and look at a lot of the, you know, a lot of the data when it talks about hunter numbers and hunter numbers declining and all that. But you've also got to realize that back in the seventies, all these guys had were two wheel drive cars. I mean, they didn't have mud motors and ATVs and four wheel drive trucks and good roads. And, you know, the places I hunt today, there was probably no one that ever penetrated back that far back then. And, uh, yeah. and then all the technological advancements with, uh, spinning wing decoys and, and clothing. And so there may have been more licensed sales at, at various points in time, but those people might've only been hunting two, three, five days a year. And they were only scratching the surface of, of what was available. So I think the ducks have more pressure than ever. They have more habitat available to them north of where they used to go. And, uh, you know, we just, they have a lot more hunter contact than they used to. And, you know, I don't want to get into a big deal on spinning wing decoys, but anyone who thinks that the hunter encounters in the field that didn't exist before spinning wing decoy don't have an effect on duck habit and duck pressure, they're, they're wrong in my opinion. I mean, you know, I remember remember in the, in the nineties when, uh, I would go and scout looking for ducks and where they were using the river because that was really the only place you were going to kill them. Uh, I would just see fields that were absolutely full of ducks, and we had no way to effectively hunt them. There weren't layout blinds. There weren't spinning wing decoys. You could go out there with a few honker decoys, but, you know, those ducks were still probably just going to do what they were going to do. And, you know, I think that they're a different, different animal than they used to be. And, and I also think, that you know you look at the private land management side of things nowadays and the people that are really you know taking care of ducks and large tracks and providing refuge for them and all that you know they figure that out quick whether it's arkansas or missouri or louisiana or wherever and a duck's going to go where it has safety it's going to go where it has food and it's going to go where it has water and they're going to find it and it doesn't take them long to figure out because the dumb ones die quick not just that, man. There is something to imprinting, like, you know, Absolutely. on our tracks, before we hunt them, the the parts that are traditionally refuge and traditionally areas that we hunt, a lot of those ducks go straight to the areas that are refuge. Not because they have better habitat on the landscape at that moment in time. I just think that they have gone there before, and they know it, and they recognize it, and that's where they go right off the bat. Oh, without a doubt, I believe that. Yeah, I know when you're talking about field hunting, we live here in Lake Raffin, right off the lake. I mean, we border right up to the Corps of Engineers, and our property butts up to the refuge, the waterfowl refuge. And um, I would probably do more, you know, I could hunt the lake, and we hunt some ponds here when it's good, which, you know, surrounded by corn. But I do a lot of my duck hunting in the fields, and we have good success. You know, so they they do get banged around here pretty much in the fields and adding that pressure on that they, they didn't have years back. You, they, they get yeah. wise. Absolutely. So you started a company. How long ago did you start and how did you get into Momarsh? Well, um, when I got out of vet school in 1995, uh, I, one of my neighbors, I say neighbor, he lived 
15 miles from me, but he, he was duck hunter, but he was more of a tinkerer than anything. And, uh, he was kind of messing around with building some fiberglass boats that were real remedial, but basically would allow you to get your, your, uh, get your equipment into these big public managed waterfowl management areas. And, uh, you know, they were, they were big. And so, you know, trying to pack all your stuff out there on your back was very, very difficult, even when I was young. And, uh, and you know, not a, you couldn't get everywhere with a big boat. Not everybody had a big boat, so we were messing with that and building these little, I don't know, kind of hybrid canoe type things. And there, there were guys out of Iowa and in Missouri at that time that had built. You know, we're building marsh boats, really, is is what you'd call them. But uh, you know, basically a low profile boat that would allow you to put all your equipment in there and get it to where you were going to hunt, and then basically hide inside of that boat and shoot ducks out of it so you know it kind of served multiple purposes and you could put one of those in the back of your truck or on a trailer or whatever so we got to building those and uh you know just kept changing them to where they really kind of fit fit our our uh you know our needs and so that was where mo marsh was born was out of building those marsh style boats and uh and then, you know, I started tinkering with, with other things and thinking about other things. And it dawned on me that, hey, you know, there's really a huge need in our community for a way to be mobile in an aquatic or, or dry field situation. Um, and not everybody has the money to buy a marsh boat. And not everybody has a place to store a marsh boat or a way to transport it. So... I wanted to come up with a line of products that basically allowed you to be mobile and well hidden uh, in an aquatic environment out of some, you know, out of a product that was light and movable and easy to store and something that pretty much everybody could afford. So that was that was where the whole idea for you know the Invisichair, the Invisilab, all all that whole line of products came from. And that would have been, you know, I started those wheels turning in like 2008 and we came out with the Invisichair and Invisilab 10 years ago. So uh, that was a, you know, that was a big change for our community to have, sure was. you know, have that option of, of being able to be, you know, on the X and mobile in an aquatic environment. Yeah. So then, uh, what what year was it that you sold it to Hidgen? Uh, that was 2018. And are you still part of that uh, with working with Mo Marsh and Hidgen and and designing, and are they pretty much run it all, or are you still have a big part in it? No, I'm still I'm still actively involved for sure. Um, so I sold it in May of 2018. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm still heavily involved on the product development side and, you know, they lean on me for, for several different things. And then I'm lucky to enjoy, um, you know, hosting the TV show with Brooke and Bo and EMP and Kelly. And, uh, so I'm involved in, in a multitude of different ways. You know, there's times like yesterday, for instance, say, asked me to take care of a, a customer service issue that was kind of 
technical and challenging. And so I'm happy to help out any way that I can. And honestly, I recently I have more time than I ever have. So hopefully we can find, you know, some, some value to where I can be even more involved and, and continue to, you know, be a, a contributor and, and, uh, you know, continue to be a valuable asset to them and uh, our pro, you know, our community for future products and whatever else may come down the line. Are you, are you, do you do any veterinary work today or no? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, although it's not near what I used to do, but I still seasonally work about three or four days a week in the office. Um, but you know, if it's duck season, I'm not there. It's <laughs> turkey season. There. So the list of when I'm not there is not a whole lot uh, longer than the list of when I'm not there. What is your involvement with Habitat Flats? Well, I'm, I'm one of the original founders of Habitat Flats. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, there were just four people. It was me and Tony and my brother and our partner, Dan Doherty. And we all brought different things to the table. But in the beginning, we were the we were the guides, we were the organizers, we were the scouts, we were the workers, we were the everything. And uh, so, you know, a lot of that's changed now. Tony's our, our manager and and uh, he takes care of the day-to-day stuff. And, you know, mainly I'm involved from a business planning and, uh, uh, you know, what do we buy, what do we sell, op- you know, just operating stuff, but not day-to-day operating stuff. Gotcha. How much uh, how much acreage does that cover on habitats? Well, I mean, we we own about thirty six hundred acres that's uh, <clears throat> under pretty intensive waterfowl management stuff, and then we lease about another twenty thousand acres that we hunt. Mainly, that's mainly field hunting stuff for the most part. Do you do any deer hunting down there? Uh, I personally deer hunt just here and there, although I've been fortunate the last couple of years. In the business, we do very little. I mean, we have the same group of guys or groups of guys that have come for a long time that come and do it. And uh, But it's not the, a focal point for us at all on the on the Habitat Flat side. What about you personally? Do, are you a bow hunter, deer hunter, rifle hunter? Well, I, no, not really. Last year... You know, with the, uh, no, I'm not a big deer hunter, but I do have some cell cams, and my kids kind of got me back into it. And if I know there's a big one somewhere, I might try and kill him. I killed a nice 13-pointer last year with my rifle, um, only because I saw him show up on camera the night before I shot him, and I, you know, I'd seen, I knew he was around. Um, which Joe, you know, Joe Weimer, kind of my social media guy, he. He always he's a huge deer hunter and he always shows that I'm the world's worst deer hunter. I think I was in the stand. I got in the stand at like seven <laughs> fifty, so an hour after some, you know it was light, and then I shot the deer at like eight oh four. So I was in the stand like fourteen minutes, which just makes him so mad, you know. And then this year, I went elk hunting out in Colorado, so I hadn't shot a bow for shoot twenty five years and. So I got a new bow and it kind of got me back into it. And I killed a, a real nice buck here at the house with my bow this year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'll deer hunt here or there, but only if I know there's a big one around. Well, I tell you, I've been told to ask you about your passion about chasing 
California Valley Quail, Eurasian Dove, Rail, Snipe, and Woodcock, and about uh, how you like to cook them. And I, I'll, I'll let you guess who told me that. Yeah, I'm sure Brooke told you that, but uh, <laughs> I'm definitely an equal opportunity uh, equal trigger puller. So, yeah. I mean, I embrace it all. So I love the early season because, uh, you know, there's just a lot of different opportunities out there and a lot of it people just really don't utilize. You know, there's, uh, he may have talked to you about the quadriflexa, but, you know, we've got the opportunity like during teal season to shoot several species of, of little birds. So, you know, we've got dove seasons open, snipe seasons open, rail seasons open. So I always enjoy really taking my 410 and, and trying to get all those little birds when they're around. And then, you know, when the woodcocks show up, I'll, I'll try and, you know, take part in that when they're around. That was a, a big part of what we did when we were kids. And uh, so, yeah, it just brings back a lot of old memories. And, and I enjoy, you know, I just enjoy seeing all those different things and having the opportunity to go after them and harvest them. And, and uh, you know, when it comes to cooking, like I said, my grandparents on, on the one side um, are from Louisiana, and so I enjoy cooking that kind of way quite a bit, along with the grilling and all that. But I do a lot of, you know, Cajun-type stuff with, with all, all those types of birds. And, and they, they fit well with that style of cooking, too. Yeah, I remember growing I grew up in Michigan. So in the early years, we didn't have the deer in southern Michigan. But I grew up, you know, I grew up on pheasants and hunting pheasants. My dad always had good upland dogs and and then we shot a lot of woodcock, and we'd always take the breast and wrap them in bacon. My dad would always grill them, but uh, woodcock was always good eating. And You know, this year, we, we had a lot of woodcock this year, and I shot quite a few. But then uh, there was one woodcock that, you know, after I'd shot about, I don't know, seven or eight or something, and uh, he was always in the same spot. And my brother and I got to watching him, and he'd, he'd get nervous and do that little Recording dance that they did do, you know, and yeah. oh man, I couldn't bring myself to shoot anymore this year after I saw that. I was like, I've shot enough woodcock this year. I'm not <laughs> shooting anymore. Well, you know what? We no, had the, we had a lot of the partridge in Michigan too, and I can remember being in a bow stand and we hear them drumming on the log. You know, you hit that dum 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 during the breeding season, and that used to be cool. And I haven't heard that in years. Yeah, now they're a little bit better to eat than a woodcock is, so I yeah. might not have a soft spot in my heart for them. <laughs> so let's talk about another thing I've noticed, especially on social media, that, you know, I, I I cut my teeth years ago, you know, guiding, guiding for geese, and, man, I shot a 10-gauge for so long, an SB10, you know, a gun that weighed 11 pounds, and I, I was in layout blinds and, and never thought twice about, oh, this gun's too heavy, and then we shot the three and a half twelves when they came out, and um, but I see such a turn. And I've talked to guys, and I've never hunted waterfowl with twenty gauges, but the the, the popularity of twenty gauges today, and is it only because of the special loads that are being made, or what what's the what's the craze on the twenty gauge? Man, uh, I don't know. I, I know in my case. Um, if, you know, if you give me a, a three inch, 
number five in a 20 gauge, I'd, I'd take that over just about anything in a 12 gauge for ducks for sure. And even for geese, I mean, I shoot all my early honkers with a 20 gauge. Now you get to this time of year and I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring a 12 with three inch load. But, uh, you know, when it comes to, I, so I shoot copper plated boss and I'm just telling you that three inch number five, 20 gauge load there i feel as comfortable shooting any duck with that as i would with the 12 gauge load at any you know any reasonable distance i think it's absolutely as capable as any 12 gauge load that's out there so we were talking but you were talking here that is an aftermarket shot that you know it's not your regular steel load that you know a lot of the young, you know i'm talking about the young kids going out there and trying to hunt they it's not like your winchester expert steel it's it's this is a special made load that's out there right yeah i'm not saying that you can't kill them with steel you can but there's no doubt that you know a copper plate of bismuth load that's uh you know boss shot shells and maybe i'm prejudiced and biased but you know that combination of a three inch five and that copper plate of bismuth is just absolutely mean i mean you know it's tight it it patterns consistently and it definitely has the the energy to take you know to kill a duck dead at at 45 yards no problem you know if if you don't get it it's because you were a little bit behind it or you know absolutely if you hit it it's it's gonna be effective and lethal for sure what choke do you shoot out of yours no days there's no days where i go out there and and think man i wish i'd have brought a 12 gauge today because if i didn't get it it wouldn't because the the gun and the load wasn't capable is because i didn't i didn't put it where it's supposed to be you know well number five of a three inch 20 gauge is the same size as out of the 12 gauge you're right it's you know how well yeah. the gun shoots for you and patterns what choke do you shoot out of your 20 well, I've got, I've got seven, you know, I shoot a whole bunch of different guns during the season, but they're all, you know, never a 12 gauge, uh, might be a 28 gauge or a 410 or 20 gauge. Um, but the, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of times I'm using a, it just depends on the gun. Honestly, I've got some of them that have Rob Roberts T ones in them. And then I've got some that have T threes in them and I have some that are, factory modified and some that are factory full um and honestly i think a lot of that is overthought like i shoot the shoot the gun on paper and if i don't like what it does then i'll put in a different choke but honestly a lot of the time uh it's i just don't see that big a difference when it comes to effectiveness or patterning between a factory modified a factory full or a T3, you know, I think, I think you just need to shoot the gun and see what it does and see how it fits you. And if you don't like it, then you might, you know, try shimming it or whatever. And, and when I say don't like it, I'm talking about in the field or not, not patterning it on paper, like with the rest, but just like up to your shoulder and pull the trigger subconsciously and see where that, that shot goes. Um, but, you know, I, I probably have, six different guns that I shoot during the season and, and their point of impact on a spot shooting deal is, is all similar. You know, one might be a little tighter, one might be a little looser, 
But as long as that shot's going where I'm pointing it, then that's good enough for me. Yeah, I talk about the shotgunning quite a bit, and it's talking about the fitting of the gun and how I'll just get a piece of paper, and I really don't. I come up with both eyes open, and I focus on the dot and pull the trigger, and I, you know, trying to see where my loads hit. And a lot of times, it's you know, every gun has to be shimmed or it might have to be moved, but you know, once they're in there, it's you know, you need to pattern your guns. I have a couple Remington or my dad's Remington Model 11s, I think. They're older. But mint condition, I think they're the Skeet models. One's a 28 gauge, and the other's a 410. And I've shot the 28 gauge, and that thing, it shoots. It's right on the money, and it really packs a punch. And I really wanted to get some, you know, looked at Boss or somebody and, and get some loads and duck hunt with it. Um, I thought about trying to kill a turkey with the 410 model this year. They both got full chokes, but it's the uh, full choke that comes in the gun. You know, that they, they weren't. Uh, removable chokes they were fixed chokes that's in there and the yeah. long barrels and you know but uh i'd like to shoot a turkey with, with it's with one of them sure and and when i say you know like all those guns point the same but not all not all people are made the same way so there are guns out there that i can't hit anything with and and it reminds me of when and i have a lot of examples like this but a couple of years i think it was year before last or two years ago lee chose came down and hunted with me and he had his old uh model model 21 and you know he got a 28 gauge and he's deadly with it well he gave it to me to shoot it up. i couldn't hit anything with it. it had so much drop for me that i was shooting like you know shoot two three feet underneath these ducks at 30 yards my pattern was you know three feet in front of them when they were getting ready to land on the water and so, you know, it's important that a, that a person kind of shoots that gun and knows that it's pointing where they think it's pointing. That's um, because Lee is so different. That's why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dad, same way, man. I picked up one of his Benelli's one time, and I, I couldn't hit anything with that thing. You know, I was just so low on those ducks. So I personally like a, a straight, flat-shooting gun. Um, that's That's what I'm used to shooting. But you give me one with too much drop, and and I can't hit anything with it. Right, <clears throat> it's kind of like a becomes your best friend when you grab that shotgun. It's like shaking hands with your best friend. It just fits perfect, you know. And you know, and, I and can. That, another thing, like you know, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But you know, when you're shooting good, which everybody has periods where they shoot better and periods when they shoot worse. But for me. My focus is completely on the bird. I have no idea if there's a beat there. I have no idea where the barrel is. I'm just solely, my vision is solely focused on that bird. But there are times where something gets into my head, especially if I switch guns or whatever, and I start thinking about the barrel and the bead. And the second that I do that, my shooting is going to be bad. And, and I, when I just went to Idaho, I shot the worst I've shot in a long time. And I found myself like paying attention to the bead and kind of wanting to close my left eye. And man, you could really tell on the results. And it wasn't until almost the last day where I got my brain squared away and said, what are you doing? Just look at the bird and do what you do, you know? And, and so if people are in the slump, that's a common reason why, why that happens, even if you don't consciously realize it. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I've suffered this year with uh, cataracts so bad, especially the last two months, but it's gotten so bad that I can't see a pin on the bow. 
I, on the shotgun, I'm almost seeing double. And <clears throat> this last week of goose season, I'm kind of stubborn with my nature. And I've been out every day in the cold out there fighting. We have a very, we, you know, limited on the amount of geese we have. But you know what? I'm still flagging. I'm calling like crazy. I'm getting these birds to dive in. There's, there's something about that, watching those birds bow up out there and try to slide away. You call them back in. And then when they hook it and they're in there in your face, it's just, it's heart pounding, you know. It's just, uh, yeah, that, you can't explain. That's for, that's for sure. But it is a lot more fun when you're going here. Well, I, them over than when you're watching them blow off. I know that too. I've that, been on both sides of that deal. Something to fix. That's easy to fix. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, George, there's a couple other things before we go. Um, just that I think, you know, you and the listeners might find interesting. Habitat Flats. Oh, I think two years ago, we started a, a retriever uh, training and, and breeding uh, operations. So if guys, you know, have interests or needs and in getting their dog gun dogs in a little bit better shape or going on like an upland hunt, we do all that there. And then uh, I've got another business called Better Barnwood where we do a bunch of like, you know, Oh, manufactured barnwood stuff and a whole lot of different furniture and all kinds of different things. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And then on the podcast side, we've actually got a podcast, me and my buddy Joe Weimer. It's called The Grind. And uh, what we mainly focus on is like people in our community. So people that are, are waterfowlers, but it's it's their story mainly of how they found success in business and life or property development or whatever. So yeah, we we talk about duck hunting some, but then we also focus on like how that person got out of you know just a regular hourly type job and you know found time to be successful in our waterfowling community, whether it was by making money or developing property or whatever the case may be. No, oh, it's cool. Very cool. And I'd definitely like to take you up on that retriever. That sounds really good. Uh, good opportunity. A guy wanting to make his dog a little stronger. Well, Ira, I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. And like I said, I hope someday our paths cross in the field and I get to share a blind with you. And well, the cool thing about it, and I know you've, you've, you've felt it because I felt it my way when I had Lynch Bob and then, you know, switching over to our legendary gear but when someone comes up to something that you worked hard that you had a passion and you designed it and you put your hands on it and you tuned it you know and, and then someone calls you back and said man i experienced the best i you know had the most fun goose hunting or duck hunting you know using your product it just changed my and when you feel that's what makes it all worthwhile and just like with you you know designing a product that people can go to the field and be able to enjoy and have more success it's 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 an accomplishment you know it's a it's a great humble accomplishment yeah i mean that is the highest compliment you know when people you know reach out and take take their time to let you know that you know something that you design and develop to try to be more effective in the field and, and have people have a better experience in the field you know when they take the time to let you know that they appreciate what you've done it really is something that you know is special this guy is an awesome guy. I'm glad to call him a friend and stay healthy, man. And all you folks out there, remember, hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there rain shining, all a part of the great design. 
bring it on, I can never get enough. Because that's what legends are made of.